Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. You are a covenant people. God has established a new covenant with you through the blood of Jesus. That covenant is sealed by the Spirit and attendant with promises that come from the almighty triune God. He has promised that you have been given a new heart and the Holy Spirit has been put within you. The old heart of stone has been removed and you have been given Christ. He has promised that you have been given the law written upon your heart by God. You know the Lord, you know his ways, and you hear his voice. He is our God and we are his people. You have been sprinkled clean with water and he has promised that you are clean from all filthiness. This doesn't mean that you will have no sin, but it means that you have been given a covering for your sin. And God promises us through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. And know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of Yahweh your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, and his signs and his works which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to Egypt's army, to its horses and its chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you, and Yahweh completely destroyed them. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen all the great work of Yahweh which he did. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven in a land for which Yahweh your God cares. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Beware lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. Now we'll turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. 
would gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the multitude and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be patient. So it was a few years ago, a man, he was um, a man of some stature in his church. He was an elder. And I was talking to him and there was trouble in in the life of, uh, of one of the people in that church. And he was telling me that he could not counsel them that this, this trouble was given by God. So at the root of that statement is a lack of understanding of what God is doing. In his mind, if you said that this came from God... You, you were attributing evil to God. And yet the entire epistle of James is arranged to attack that very notion that God gives his people trouble, but it's for their good. His purpose is good. And so we have to get that in our minds that trouble comes from God for our good. And I've been repeating that. We need to know it like, like Joseph learned it, that the history of his life, the story of his life that that time in slavery, it was by God's design for his good purpose, and it brought about salvation in the world. And we have to know that and believe it so that when times of trouble come, we don't attribute that trouble to another source. And it causes the kind of derailment that we see in James chapter 5. The second story is one that's common to anybody here that has children. Right now, my youngest is in the throes of discipline, and For all of our children, 
that, that usually starts out with a lengthy, healthily long session of learning uh, obedience. And when you're 17 months old, you have no frame of reference. There's no, there's no time. And so right now, every day, right around 5.20, my youngest one loses it. Patience does not exist. And it doesn't matter how many times you tell her to be patient, that word means nothing to her. Not that it hasn't been repeated, it has no context, because she has no timeline. For her, a second might as well be eternity. And so she has to learn that. She has to learn it. And part of that learning takes place over time. As you get older, your frame of reference, even, even for untrained, ungodly people, your frame of reference grows a little bit longer so that one second no longer seems all that long to wait. And it, it grows. And so even when you're untrained by, by Scripture or parents, eventually it grows to minutes and usually hours but it, it needs the healthy hand of a parent in some trouble in life to grow to days and years and decades. My point in that is when we think about patience, from learning as, as people, we, we have that frame of reference built in where it's a portion of our life that seems reasonable. Even, even after the, the training of life, maybe you've learned to wait a year or two, because that's a percentage of what you have experienced, of what, of what we can experience. And so at the end of your life, maybe waiting a decade doesn't seem so long, and patience is achievable. But in order to escape outside of the reins of our experience level, we have to learn patience not just from our frame of reference. Psalm 119 says that you can be wiser than your elders if you're dedicated to obeying God's Word. So only by learning God's Word can we escape outside of that frame of reference where we can obtain patience that's beyond a year or a decade and that passes through the veil of this life and into the next one. That is a requirement. We have to live by faith in order to have patience that stretches beyond what we can immediately foresee in front of us. And we have to know those two things. And so being embedded and knowing God's plan for history, seeing and looking backwards and seeing how he's dealt with people over time, it teaches us what patience is. But the other part of that is patience is like a muscle. Even, even worldly psychologists will recognize this. If you want to achieve something, it takes uh, something that, that requires patience and endurance. It, you build it up like, like a muscle. And so, as we approach this text today, I want to encourage us. The church that James is writing to is undergoing severe trial. They're being cast out of their homes, they're looking their life in their faces, and that may seem foreign to us right now, although some of you are going through trial, and the church may well be brought through severe trial in the coming months and years. I was reading one commentator, or preacher, I don't remember, I get lost in the details, but he was comparing it to reading the, uh, the manual for how to fix a car when you're not in the middle of it. it. It seems a little bit theoretical until you're in the middle of the trouble. And so the best you can do is, is take a few notes. You have a light sketch in your mind of how to respond, but then I, I can attest that uh, I've, I've learned to fix my cars by need-driven uh, learning, not, not because I've been attentive to said details. Um, and in the middle of it, I always have to go back. I go back and watch the video or, or pick up the manual because I can't remember how those parts fit together, how to take them apart. Well, in James, he gives us license at the beginning of his epistle to apply this work to every kind of trouble. And that means that we build patience like a muscle by exercising the response that James calls us to not just waiting for the big waves of life, but in every little wave, in every small storm that God sends our way, every annoyance, every flash that, that, that tempts us to anger, we need to listen to his admonition to build the muscle to remind ourselves of who God is and how he's working in us. So with that introduction, let's turn to God in prayer.
Father, we come before you and we ask that you would speak to us this morning to refresh us through your word. We know that your word is the one that gives us wisdom and training. You use it to mature us from children and to adults that can look at your world and see your hand at work in it. You use it to bring about in us a heart of faith, a circumcised heart that trusts you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear in your word and do your work in us and plant your word in us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you would turn with me to James chapter 5, and we're going to read the whole of James chapter 5 together. And then I'll come back, and as normal, Arvin told me that I have a style, and so it seems that my style is to go through some of the, some of the uh, legislative bit of the passage first. So we're going to do that, and then we'll come back and uh, dig into uh, the richness of, of the words that James uses and how they bring to bear the story of how God is building patience in us. So James chapter 5 Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. You have seen the perfect end of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the sky poured forth rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers... If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 today. And I just want to point out how this functions in the text. So if you can remember a month back, the last time we were in James you remember that James chapter 5, verse 9, acts as an inclusio. It bookends the section starting in James chapter 4, verse 11, which says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He uses that same form, but he changes the word speak against to groan or complain. Do not complain against one another. And contained within these commands, which are the same commands, we had the two come now passages. And verse 13 through 17 of chapter 4 and chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Judgments on, on those first who ignore God in their activities, who make their plans and ignore the work of God and the requirement of God in their lives. And then secondly, a judgment on those who are rich. And we discussed those 
and there are multiple meanings, but embedded within that is, is this command. And so it reads on our text today because this is the close of that section, and we'll see reflections, answers to both of those judgments in this text. But it also looks forward, and so this begins the, the conclusion to the book of James, and so it harkens back all the way to James chapter 1. We're talking about patience and endurance, which is how he opened the book. He said, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter all kinds of trial, because trial brings about endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so he's coming back to the purpose of the book, which is to look at trial rightly and let it produce endurance and then let endurance have its perfect result. And so we see both of those words here in, in verse 11. We see that the, the suffering, which requires endurance, brings about the perfect end. And you can look backwards and you can see that in the story of the suffering prophets and the story of Job. And so we have proof in God's history how he works with us, how he brings that perfect maturity, that end result to, to bear. But then we'll also see that this section, verses 7 through 11, acts as an inclusio to the very end of the book of James. And so he gives an example in verse 7 about the farmer. He's, he says, if you want to learn patience, look at the farmer. Behold the farmer, he waits for the precious produce of the soil, and he's patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. And this book ends, James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured forth rain, and the dirt produced its fruit. And so we have rain coming down and it's producing fruit out of the soil. And there's, there's a little bit of a different twist as we move from the beginning to the end of this section in James chapter 5 on what we're supposed to learn. But I wanted to point that out as we'll, we'll be coming back to it shortly. So then looking at chapter 5 verses 7 through 11, what you'll notice is that this is all about patience. He repeats the word patience four times, I believe, and then he moves to endurance. It has a very similar idea. The word patience is long-suffering. So you take the long view, the mature view, in which you can look out past the second and the minute, the days, the years, into the future of what God is doing, and by faith, you're steadfast. Your heart is made strong, and so you can endure without wavering. And he gives for us to consider two examples. One is a parable-like example, the parable of the farmer and the soil, and we'll, we'll consider that. And then secondly, he says, look backwards in history. If you want to know what patience is, if you want to be bolstered in your faith, look backwards because we count as blessed those who patiently endured, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We've been reading about them, studying them in, in, in Second Chronicles, and you've been reading about them in the minor prophets. They had to wait. And they were long-suffering. The author of the Hebrews talks about these kinds of men. It says, men of whom the world is not worthy. They hid in caves and, and they were buried. They were sawn in two. They were, there was all manner of brutalities put to them. And yet we count them blessed because they endured. And through their endurance, God brought about the end result, the mature, perfect outcome, which we read about in James chapter 1. So we'll have to speak about that Again, So we take these two examples side by side and they encourage us in, in a couple of different ways and, and we'll see that from, from, from the examples themselves. And then in the middle of the two examples, so the examples come in verse 7 and verses 10 and 11, in the middle of that we have the primary command of this section to patience. And that primary command within be patient is do not complain brothers against one another. And that's important. We'll read back into the history of Israel, the story of complaint, and see how it relates to this, this text. But I think we all know, probably from being on the wrong side of, of this command, that in the midst of trouble, it is easy to complain against one another. It's easy to groan out and to attribute our problems to those around us. And James says, do not complain brothers. 
And the reason that we don't complain is that you yourselves may not be judged, and behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And so he's, he's encouraging us, be patient. And the reason to be patient, we'll see, is that the judge is standing, he's listening, and if we strike out against our brothers, then we are that double-minded fool who asks God for wisdom, but he won't be given any. And so we need to repent of this sin. We need to look to God to trust that the Father of the light of lights is the one who's given us our trouble to sanctify us, to move us forward in giving us wisdom and making us mature. So coming back to the first example, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. So at first blush, this is, and it's true, this is easy to understand. Maybe not as easy for those of us who are not farmers, but um, we're not so far removed that we don't understand that rain is necessary, especially right now in the state of Texas, in order for a crop to come. We have sprinklers. If you use them excessively, you'll also notice right now that your water bill is exorbitant. Um, I don't, so my, my yard is not fruitful. And uh, not to be too bold, but my wife has complained about me because of that fact, so this sermon is really all about, about the fruitfulness of our yard. <laughs> so he gives this example. He says, look to the farmer. He waits for the precious produce of the soil, and he's patient about it. So a, a couple of observations. We already, we already looked at the end of this text, and we saw that, that it's reflective there. Elijah eventually prays for, for rain. We're not going to look at that example today. But he prays for rain, and it comes, and he too is waiting for the rain in order to bring about the produce of the soil. Plants don't grow. Life doesn't come if there's no rain. But we can be a little more expansive in our thinking about, about this this example, we read the story of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, in which God himself has planted uh, a harvest, and the enemy comes in and sows within the midst of it, and so there's tares mixed in the, with the wheat, and he says, wait, we're, we're going to wait for the harvest, and we'll, we'll hold that in your mind. But in thinking about God planting, God planting in the soil, and all of the the biblical precedent for what that means. God brings out of dirt us. And so on one level, we are the produce of the dirt. God made Adam out of the dust of the ground. And it's that word, from, from the earth, God breathed forth with the spirit, with the spit on his breath, and he breathed life into Adam. And that life requires, it requires the early and the late rains. And I say that in part because if you look at how he phrases this, it's a little odd. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. And if you're starving, it is indeed precious, but it's not a word that's usually associated with wheat or, or grain that's growing out of, the, out of the ground. Instead, if you look through your, your New Testament and you look at the word for valuable, it's associated with the blood of Christ. But most normatively, it's talking about precious stones those costly, valuable gemstones that are found in the soil, but they represent us. God is making and forming us into this work, the work of his hand that comes through trouble and toil. And so all of this, the farmer has to wait, and he doesn't have control. If you remember, I said that the, the two Come Now passages read on these examples. He says in verses 13 through 17, he's advising us. He says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We do not have control. And so he reminded of the, us of that. And now you look at the farmer, and the farmer does not have control. He can plant, he can till, he can take care of the soil, but he does not have control over the rains, the windows of the heaven opening up. So if you would, let's turn back to Deuteronomy Chapter 11, James brings in the phrase early and late rains, and that is, uh, that's found a few times in the Old Testament, and it's specifically about the nation of Israel. 
So we read this, this passage this morning. I just want to focus in on a, a couple of verses. So there's, they're standing across the Jordan. Israel is waiting to go into the promised land. And Moses is speaking to them the second law. And he, he tells them this in verse 10. The land into which you are entering to possess it, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. So the, the idea is you, you, could, you could irrigate. The Nile was always there. The Nile would flood uh, at least once a year and, and bring water into all the lands around it. But the Nile was there. You could irrigate. If there was no rain, there was water available. But he says the land in which you're about to go, the land of Israel, God's promised land, it's not like that. It's a land of hills and valleys, and it drinks water from heaven, from the rain of heaven. A land, verse 12, for which Yahweh your God cares, and the eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And so God is intentionally pointing out that this place, it's not like Egypt. You're going to have to learn to trust me. The eyes of God are always on the land. And he's the one that opens the heavens. And in Israel, they were opened twice a year, the early rains and the latter rains. And so in the autumn, at the planting of the new crop, there was a rainy season. And then again, before the harvest in the springtime, there was a second uh, rainy season, which brought about the fullness of the crop. But God has more, he's, he, there's more to it than just the rain. He's teaching. He's teaching Israel to depend on him. And he says that the eyes of Yahweh are always on this land. From the beginning even to the end of the year. The Hebrew word for eye is, is also the, the, the word for fountain or spring. And so God is saying that he's watering the ground of Israel, the ground of the promised land, with the springs of heaven. He always looks to it. He knows when it's open and when it's shut. And so he's giving them a warning. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he'll give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, so that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and he'll give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. But beware, lest your hearts are deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you. And he'll shut up the heavens so that there will not be rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. And so there's a warning built in here. Water comes from heaven. If you abandon God, if you forget him, if you forget to follow him with all of your heart and soul, the heavens will be shut, the land will dry up, and life will die. But remember... There's early and there's late rains in Israel. And so there's a period of waiting in which you have to patiently wait to trust that God is once again, every year, going to bring the rain that provides life. Throughout the prophets, they pick up this idea because God told Israel, if you do not obey, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to shut the heavens. And so they pick up this idea of the early and the late rains, and they use it in a few different fashions, which builds out the picture of what God is doing in James chapter 5. So if you would turn with me uh, first to Hosea, and we'll just use that as a representative text, Hosea chapter 6. And along with Jeremiah, he uses this idea of the rain coming as a picture of a husband returning to his bride. And so Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive, revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day, so that we may live before him. 
So let us know, let us press on to know Yahweh. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And so Hosea is a book about marriage. It's a prophecy that's pictured in marriage, and the return of God is, is the return of the spring rain. And so Jeremiah uses this image in the same way, that God is coming to his people, and it's like the, the rain that waters the earth. The husband returns to his wife, and there's fruitfulness once again in the marriage. There's peace. And secondly, if you would turn with me to Joel chapter 2. And we'll look beginning in verse 21 of Joel chapter 2. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for Yahweh has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full, so rejoice, O sons of Zion, be glad in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before, and the threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. So God's return to the nation of Israel, it begins with this. He'll bring the early rain for your vindication. The early and the late rains will return as before. God has brought judgment to the land. It's parched. It's dried up. There's no life. And Joel says the return will look like this. The heavens will once, have been, once again be opened. The rain will come down, the crops will come through, life will return, the cattle will have something to eat, you'll have wine, grain, and oil to rejoice before your God. But the reason I turn to, to Joel is because he uses this in verse 28 and he adds to this image, which is done throughout the Old Testament, but I just want to look at it here. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and the female spirits, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And of course, we know the rest of that text, that God is coming. And there's a judgment associated with that coming. But we see this fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, when the spirit is poured forth on the apostles in tongues of fire, and they speak, and all men hear. But what I want to point out is that the rain comes. It's a picture of the Spirit coming and bringing life, filling up, moistening the dry bones of Ezekiel 37. He's bringing life, but it comes in two parts, and James wants us to see that. There's early, early rain and there's late rain. So just think with me uh, about how God does this. So for the nation of Israel, they first exited the land of Egypt and they walked beneath the cloud through the walls of water in the Red Sea. And then they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. All of them died except Joshua and Caleb. And then they walked again through walls of water at the Jordan River. Their trip was bookended by water. Walking underneath the cloud of God, they went through a first baptism and then a second baptism. But in between... What was the primary pressing complaint of the nation of Israel? There is no water. They complained. And they complained at one another. They complained at Moses, the representative that God had given them. And because of their complaints, it resulted eventually in unbelief, a refusal to enter the land, and God judged that nation in the wilderness so that they all perished. And a new nation of sons and daughters walked through the Jordan River. Now think about that in the context of James. Behold, therefore, brothers, until be patient until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. He's waiting for the land. He's waiting for the fruit of the land. He's patient, waiting for the early and the late rains. You too be patient Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, and do not complain, brothers, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. So we see that history in the nation of Israel. 
God brought them through water, and then they wandered for 40 years. He provided for them, but there was a, a drought, and they had to wait. And because of their complaints, that generation died in the wilderness. Now think about the readership of the book of James. They've just experienced Pentecost. The Spirit came. The heavens were opened up. God gave life. And now they've been cast out of the land. They're in trouble. And James is encouraging them, be patient. Don't be like the nation of Israel. Don't lash out at one another. Don't complain at one another. Do not speak against one another because the judge is standing right at the door. And history repeats itself. They have to wait 40 years and then the Spirit comes again. Jesus comes again in judgment. And that's what he's talking about. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And he's talking to a people that are oppressed there's a field of mixed wheat and tares. And so the Judaizers and those who have trusted in Christ are growing up side by side. And the, the, the Hebraic Jews and, and the, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, they've both lashed out. They put Stephen to death. They're going together hand in hand to persecute God's people. And he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Don't complain against one another. Instead, wait. Wait for the completion of the early and the latter rains. So if we say this, that the latter rains, the early and the latter rains are a picture of God's return, of the, the return of Jesus that comes to fruition at the destruction of the temple, the judgment of the Jews, does it speak to us? And the answer is yes. So we can see it in history, the, the witness of these people is added to the witness of Moses, in which we can look back and we say that God was faithful. He kept his promises. He came back. He judged those who were oppressing him. They had to wait and be patient. And then there was a judgment, an unmixing of the wheat and the tares. But that should encourage us because this also speaks to us. In every trial, God is standing. For every one of us, this lifetime will come to an end and God's judgment will come. He may intervene in history and come sooner. But for every one of us, the judge is standing at the door. And so he says, be patient. Do not complain against one another. Trust that God is given this trouble for your good. And don't get mixed up when you look at your brother and so that you lash out and you complain against him. Otherwise, you will be judged, just like the Israelites fell in the wilderness, just like the Judaizers fell at the temple when Jesus came again. So we, too, are called to take heed. Be long-suffering. Take the long view of all that God is, is doing. Look at history. God is always faithful. And that's the point of Second Peter. It's the point of the book of Jude. God knows how to bring the wicked to punishment. He knows how to rescue the righteous. And so all we have to do is wait in faith. Look to the Lord and trust because he's promised so he says in verse 18, 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand and do not complain against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he says, look back, look back at all the prophets and take note of how God worked in their lives. Take note of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah. All those who spoke in the name of the Lord, they spoke, and what they spoke came true, and yet they suffered for it. Think about Noah. He was a prophet of God, too. He spoke God's word, and he suffered. And so take heart while we, while we live and work under the hand of God. Look to his eternal purpose in us. And he gives us one specific example. He says, Behold, we count blessed those who endured. And you have heard of the endurance of Job. You've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And so he directs our attention to one specific example. And he says, We count those blessed who endured. So look to Job. Job. 
I opened James two years ago now, a lot of new people since then, including myself, um, but reflecting primarily on Job and thinking about how God uses, God uses Job to shape and teach us about suffering and patience. And if you look at Job's life, it's, it reads on every admonition that James gives us. He was rich and he became poor. His brothers spoke against him, and yet God said in all this, he did not sin with his mouth. He was given much at the beginning of his life, and then it was all taken away. But if you remember at the end of Job's life, he was given double everything that he had in, in the beginning. There was, in some sense, an early and a late reign. He had to wait. He had to wait in patience. James says, look at this man, Job. Look at what God did, specifically how he suffered and the outcome of his sufferings. So if you would turn to the end of, book, end of the book of Job. So Job chapter 42. to remind you of that outcome. So looking in Job chapter 42, verse 7, and I realize that we're, we're skimming over much that can be learned from his life, but to think about all that God is doing, to fix our eyes on the, the end result of, of the suffering of Job. Read in Job chapter 42, verse 7, and it came about after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job that Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zovar the Namathite went and did as Yahweh told them and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord came to Job, he wrapped him up in the storm cloud, he spoke to him and he resurrected him. He gave him new life and as part of that life, he was, he was welcomed into the counsel of God, and he offered on behalf of those friends who badgered him and bullied him, and he brought life. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. And we can read about it in his livestock and his sons and his daughters. He gave him a new family. He lifted up the entirety of his life. But above all of that, all of the planting in the land, God gave Job wisdom. This is what Job says. Job answered Yahweh, I know that you can do all things. I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak, I will ask I'll ask you and instruct me. You instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees, my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What God did for Job is he brought him from the beginning of, of the book in which Job was called a righteous man, a blameless man. He was a good man who served the Lord, but through trouble, God brought him and he opened his eyes to see God. He gave him wisdom. He allowed him into the inner council and he spoke directly to Job. The end of our trouble is eyes to see. Yes, God is going to be faithful. He's going to bring the rain that will result in all of, all of the blessings that we can't predict. We don't exactly know how they're going to look from one day to the next, but we know this, that God, in the midst of trouble, he brings wisdom 
When we choose to obey, to be patient and to endure, to shut our mouths, to not speak out against our brothers, God will bring wisdom because it's a promise. And with that wisdom is abundance of life. That's a promise for right now, and it's a promise that endures through to the future so that we look at people like Job, people like the prophets, and we count them blessed because they endured. We see the end outcome from the hand of the Lord because they endured. If they had not endured, the end that we read about in Scripture would not have come. It's a little bit ironic because we count them endured, and yet when we see suffering, we want, we want to run away. Instead of looking at it and saying, this is what God is doing. He's bringing me to this same end effect to have wisdom. And so, as I started out, we need to have the attitude of Joseph, who clearly the trouble in his life was brought about by the effector of his brothers, and yet he could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so that, that time of being sold into slavery, it was God-given for good. And so he didn't curse them. Instead, he worked to bring about their repentance. He didn't groan and complain like the nation of Israel. Instead, he became a savior to them. When we have this attitude, we'll see at the end of this, at the end of James chapter 5, that we'll become like Elijah for one another. Jesus says that out of you, rivers of living water will flow. We'll become springs of life for one another. So I'm going to end there with this encouragement. James says, be patient. And especially for, for us as men, we have an opportunity to practice that. Many men are prone to anger, prone to speak quickly. And so for every annoyance, for every trial, we have the opportunity to flex this muscle. He says, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The judge is standing right at the door. And the way that we strengthen our hearts is by re reminding ourselves of this, tr this truth, knowing the history of God's people, how He works among us, how He brings His people to perfection and by practicing. And so when trouble comes, don't complain. Instead, be patient. Look to God. If you would pray with me. Father, we, help, we, we pray that you would help us to think rightly. It's easy in theory, but when trouble comes, Lord, to think rightly, to know that you are the good and loving Father that gives it to us for our good. Lord, help us to have long-suffering spirits, to look to you, as the one that brings the early and the late rains, that one's the one who will cultivate and bring about the precious, valuable produce of the soil who will bring life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that in our families and in this church. Prepare us, Lord, for trouble, because we know that when it comes, it's from your good hand. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.